0: The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Maté, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast to the word, not the numeral on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Sonder Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. It's human to know oneself. We are able to self-monitor, understand our cognition, and recognize gaps in our knowledge. This is called metacognition. We think about how we think. We can think of it as self-awareness or the ability to understand the state of our knowledge. In this episode, we talk with Stephen Fleming, professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London. Steve's recently published a book on this topic called Know Thyself, We wanted to explore a number of ideas with him, metacognition as uniquely human, as an important skill, whether machines need to have some form of awareness, and the issue of agency and machines. In his book, Steve proposes that we either put self-awareness into machines, thereby reducing our need for self-awareness, or design interfaces that increase human self-awareness. If we have self-aware machines, then we risk losing our own. If we want better self-awareness, we must prioritize how an AI metacognition can show us its uncertainty and error. This second route is more likely to result in humans retaining autonomy. It preserves the human role of wrestling uncertainty, seeking explanations and making sense of the world. Perhaps the biggest insight for us regarding agency and AI is how to think about it as having a structure. We talk about how true autonomy is aligning our choices and wants and how machines play a role. Well, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. We're very happy to have you with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So maybe you could start off by telling us uh, what metacognition is and why it's powerful.
1: Sure. So metacognition literally means cognition about cognition or thinking about thinking. And it's this capacity that the human mind has to reflect on and think about its own workings. Um, so, as an example of this, if you're uh, going to the shops and you're trying to remember a big shopping list, you might think to yourself, "Hang on, this is too much for me to remember. I need to write it down." And that, in doing that, uh, very simple offloading uh operation, you've made a decision about the fact your memory isn't going to be good enough to hold all those items in mind. So that's a metacognitive judgment about how good your memory is. Um, in a totally different domain, say perception, we might think to ourselves whether our visual systems are working as they should. If things are looking blurry, then that might be time to get a new pair of glasses, for instance. And so again, that's a judgment not about the outside world. It's a judgment about how our own Uh, minds and brains are working Um, and as hopefully those examples make clear metacognition this ability to kind of take this outside perspective on ourselves supercharges many aspects of our daily lives so it helps us to make good decisions it helps us to communicate uncertainty and confidence about our mental states to others it helps us learn things it helps us know when we don't know and so on and so forth there's many areas in which this reflective awareness of what we know, what we don't know, how things are working is really important for kind of extending our intelligence to become wiser individuals, not just people who can do things, but who people who know how they're doing things and why they're doing things.
2: It certainly implies then that it says something about intelligence more generally. And one of the things in AI is people are kind of obsessed of what is um, uniquely for the machine and uniquely for the human. How does what does it say about what does metacognition say about intelligence generally? It depends
1: on what we mean by intelligence here. If we mean um, the kind of thing that psychologists study with IQ tests, then metacognition is quite distinct to that kind of ability to reason through problems. And we know this from empirical work where we've quantified people's metacognition by looking at how well their reflective judgments track their performance on simple tasks. And we've related that ability to measures of IQ. And in the general population, these two things are often uncorrelated. So you can have someone who's actually very intelligent as measured by an IQ test, but has poor metacognition and vice versa, you could have someone who maybe is performing p- poorly at a particular task that you give them. But as long as they're aware of when they're getting things wrong, that kind of that person has excellent metacognition about their performance on that task. And in a sense, metacognition is often most useful when we're doing stupid things. So just from first principles, metacognition and intelligence uh, come apart there. Um, but then obviously you can widen your definition of intelligence to include these um aspects of self-awareness and i think that makes sense from a um uh, from a uh, point of view of what we want to achieve in our lives we don't just want to be smart we also want to be um aware of what we're doing um and why we're doing it so i think it yeah it turns on your definition of of intelligence there
0: which to me is it, it's quite interesting when thinking in the context of artificial intelligence, given that so much of current AI is those are those narrow operations around particular forms of reasoning, for instance, or a particular prediction on, in a particular setting. But what you're saying is there's, that that's sort of that's the corollary to IQ-oriented definitions of mm-hmm. intelligence, but very different from what we're talking about here in terms of metacognition. There's almost like a question of whether people in the AI field have really considered the concept of metacognition in relation to the machine.
2: No, it makes me wonder whether it, it, it would be for many quite a new concept, mm. especially if you're thinking about um, the way you described its role in helping you discover meaning and purpose mm-hmm. and it not just sort of optimizing for some ambition or some goal in your own life, but actually having a, 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 a re, your ability to reflect on whether you have good friendships or um, whether you've made some sort of contribution that's meaningful. Um, that is something that I think that would still be relatively new to many AI people. I was looking at some f- Facebook um, research recently, and they talk about common sense as the, um, the dark matter of, of intelligence, which I thought was kind of a, a curious use of the term because it doesn't feel very dark matter to us. Um, maybe metacognition would be more dark matter-ish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, just to um, pick up on that uh, point about common sense, I mean, common sense, I think, is a, a very broad topic Um, but I do feel like metacognition is a component of that in that what we um, often mean by common sense is in a sense realizing when we're going about something not in the right way and I think you often see this in the interactions between parents and children like children will try and do something one way and then the parent will come in and say you know hang on, that's not quite the way you should be doing it here. You know, you should be trying a different strategy. And as we, in a sense, in that situation, the parent is providing the metacognitive oversight for the child. It's kind of trying to provide that reflective um, stance. And as adults, we bring both of those aspects within the same system so we we internalize a lot of a lot of that um internal running commentary on um, the kind of decisions we're making on a day-to-day basis the kind of strategies we're adopting in our um, daily lives and so you know in a sense being able to realize when we're off track is a key metacognitive capacity that probably does help get us somewhere towards what looks like more common sense decision making, um, in humans.
0: I'm curious on the, the, just want to run with one idea you have there about the parent helping the child Mm -hmm. improve their metacognitive capabilities. Um, do you have thoughts about more, more thoughts about how an individual can help another individual improve their metacognitive abilities?
1: so the example of the parent and child there i wasn't suggesting that the parent in that situation is coaching metacognition per se it's Mm. almost like they're providing the metacognition that hasn't yet developed we know from research on children that it's not until the age of uh, three or four that the kids start to pass these tests of metacognition and the tests involve things like being able to realize when you've got something wrong or realize that you don't know something on an explicit level. Um, And before that, when kids are younger, then you might have parents who kind of almost provide surrogate metacognition for the kids. They kind of say to them, no, you're off track there. You know, you you should be doing this or, um, you know, providing the opportunity to realize when they might have got something wrong and that they should try, try a different strategy. Um, But I think there is also another, aspect to how we develop metacognition as children, which is probably um, some more active instruction from um, our parents, our teachers, our social group. And we've written a paper on this with uh, Cecilia Hayes, who's a psychologist in Oxford. She has developed a, um, a theory about how higher cognitive abilities in humans may well be, culturally acquired they're not necessarily um built into us um via genetic programs that instead we need to in a sense learn to self-reflect we need to learn the skills required to think about ourselves and she's made a similar case that we need to learn skills to think about other minds to do theory of mind um so i am very attracted to this idea that metacognition is Um, a product of cultural evolution and that we do in a sense get coached to do it um, by our social group not necessarily intentionally like learning to read but something more implicit um, where just by being part of a social group being part of a family group we get regular feedback um, about how we should be thinking about things and that in a sense builds up this higher level of metacognition
2: Does that mean that we signal, that there are metacognitive signals about when you're more open to feedback or when your thinking is is incorrect or correct?
1: Yes, I think that um, there are uh, plenty of implicit markers of when we're doubting the answer to something and um, when it might then be helpful to in a sense, get this outside perspective, this this advice from others, um, but that's slight, so, and and that you see that in the studies of young children when they naturally uh, begin to ask for help or they naturally signal that they don't know the answer, and then the the parent can come in and provide that um, that support. But that's somewhat different to the, I think, more heavy duty notion that cecilia is putting forward which is that not only do our not only does our social group provide the information if you like for um resolving those uh situations of of doubt they provide the skills to doubt in the first place um and i think that's a more heavy-duty idea of what it means to teach metacognition. It's not necessarily providing the information itself, but it's providing the skills that we can then use to doubt ourselves in the first
2: place. Right, so it's a distinction between, say, uh, uh, offloading it or outsourcing it or turning it off inside yourself so that someone else can do it. I think you talk about, um, like, coaching as being a, they say golf coaching, or in sports that the coach is is providing that metacognition for the player so that they can more quickly get into flow. But you're distinguishing that from two other things. One is the cultural um, ecosystem of of how you learn to cooperate and pass back and forth, like the, the, the meta-knowledge. You know, do you understand this or not? What's our level of doubt as a community and as a group of individuals? As distinct again from childhood, which is more that um, explore-exploit dilemma kind of thing where the children are just ex- exploring, exploring, exploring and parents are able to not just provide safe environment for that but a metacognitive environment for that. They're actually providing the strategies to the children so that they can sort of check themselves as they learn what play is and what cause and effect is and what com- and build up that common sense reasoning. Um I'm interested in this um, idea of the culture being so different. Um, If we are a community of mind and we're, we're, you know, very much thinking using other people, if you think, if if machines are in that community as well, Mm. do they have to have, what does metacognition mean in a machine? It's not just a, I mean, at the moment you could ask a, a data scientist and might say they might say well it's the prediction prediction accuracy 86 mm-hmm. percent likely that this prediction is true um, that seems very simple mm-hmm. and one-dimensional how far would that need to go to even equal it or, or be equivalent to a, a human
1: yeah I, I think it's a great question and I think that Perhaps one way of starting to answer this is thinking about the kind of building blocks that go into creating human metacognition. And so human metacognition is not monolithic. It's not just a single thing that's happening. Um, it's probably built up by, from multiple components. Um, and some of these components were able to study in experiments in the lab in um by measuring how people form confidence in um, their beliefs and decisions and what's been found in that research is that again leaning on comparisons with animals and also comparisons with um, uh, babies and children what's been found there is that there are these implicit self monitoring abilities which enable the formation of simple confidence estimates um, about individual decisions that may map quite cleanly, I think, onto the kind of performance prediction um, algorithms that you mentioned. Um, Whereas there's also this more explicit level of self-knowledge that seems to, as I said earlier, come online later in childhood. It doesn't seem to be as... Um, present in other animals it might be present in um, non-human primates but it doesn't seem to be present uh, beyond that which is this um, capacity for applying theory of mind to ourselves so in a sense thinking about ourselves as other people would um, taking this third person perspective on ourselves that seems to overlap with the kind of machinery involved in social cognition in thinking about other people Um, and that's what kids seem to attain at around the age of four and that I think is a much more difficult problem to start to get a handle on from the computational neuroscience or AI perspective Um, there are some really interesting models I think of how theory of mind might work in um, Bayesian networks doing mental state inference for instance but there's only been a little bit of progress so far on applying similar models um that can do inference about our own uh mental states and kind of create a self-model of our own minds at work there's very little work on fleshing that out in computational terms um so yes i think that you know that one one step along the road to creating metacognition in machines is to pursue the performance prediction algorithms that you mentioned and even there there are substantial challenges i think about getting them working in the real world and we can maybe talk about that um but i think there is a difference between that kind of confidence or uncertainty estimate and the broader and more flexible self-modeling that humans seem to effortlessly engage in
2: yeah and one of those when you talk about confidence calibration um we found that to be really fascinating to to explore with people, so mm-hmm. um it it's not just a it's not obviously a one hit. you ask someone how confident are you in that thing, and they have to sit and think about it for a minute and give an answer, and then maybe the next day that's changed a bit because they've learned a bit more in that sort of classic updating but it seems to be like it's it's skewed around by whether or not they think in terms of a percentage or whether they think in terms of a word and um, that that's something that people understand when you're in a group cooperating in, with people but you don't have that same relationship with the machine. The machine says a number and the reaction to that is actually different than if a person says a number. So the models that you're talking about and the, some of the research that you – um mentioned would have to somehow get to the point that some that people had a, a more intuitive reaction to more a more constructive con- intuitive or an accurate intuition about what that machine was thinking and what that mm-hmm. number meant um, it feels like it's a different process
1: yeah and and that i think is um where the way that we communicate and share confidence and uncertainty as humans Um, starts to take on a different flavor to what current kind of uncertainty signatures in in AI might give you. So one example of how these things are quite different um, comes from work from a former postdoc in my group called uh, Dan Bang, who was studying how confidence calibration works in pairs of people interacting And what he found there was that people rapidly, when they have the chance to interact, come to some common ground about their confidence estimates. So if one person tends to be using higher confidence than the other, then they'll rapidly meet in the middle so that that communication of confidence is useful because otherwise one person would always be kind of dominating the the joint decision. So you'd want to, in a sense, iron out any differences in average confidence level between two people when they're collaborating to solve a problem. And that's actually what happens in these experiments. Um, And so that's something that, in a sense, requires rapid reciprocal modelling of the other person as well, because you want to, as you say, kind of understand what's underpinning, what, what what's forming the basis for that other person's confidence estimate. Um, and there's various things to disambiguate there. One is that it could be that they're just the kind of person who tends to give lower confidence estimates, in which case you do want to recalibrate or it could be a, a genuine signal of uncertainty in that particular domain, in which case you don't want to recalibrate. So that kind of latent state inference you need to do to kind of get behind the confidence estimate, I think does require this notion of theory of mind that I was talking about before, this idea that we can think about other people's minds and what's producing their statements, the, the 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 things that they're sharing, but also thinking about how our own minds are working and how those statements are being produced by ourselves and recalibrating on our own side as well. How do we how do we
0: communicate that to each other as humans? And I, I'm I'm particularly interested in the how does one sense. The level of confidence coming from another, so that it what, what is it that triggers us to spend a bit more time um, reevaluating, um, thinking more about our self-awareness? You know, obviously it's spending more time with our metacognitive abilities. What is it about what you know? We're, you're sitting here looking at two people who spend a lot of time making joint decisions, <laughs> whether it's about you know, at house or children or work, we're constantly Mm. doing this. Yeah. So what is it that I'm sensing that makes me have to stop and think about my decision a bit further?
2: Well, and not least of which our cultural difference.
0: We have cultural differences. The
2: American and the New Zealand way of doing things is, is, is different.
0: And I'm. The she thinks of me as the perpetual optimist, and I think of her as the perpetual pessimist. (laughs) And somehow we meet in the middle. I mean, she's the engineer, and I'm the humanities person. We're constantly calibrating. So we're constantly putting this together. And I'm really interested how how I'm. What is it that I'm sensing that makes me stop and go? "Hmm, Let me think about that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I I I think it's a fascinating question, and I think there is some. Emerging work on this. Um, so, I mean, one obvious level of what you're sensing is I think these more explicit statements. We don't always make them, but we do sometimes make them. You know, we say to our partner, like, I'm not so sure about the fact we should be doing this. Like, let's think about it differently. And then that is a trigger for you to then, as you say, Dave, re- reflect on and reevaluate whether you have come to the right conclusion on something. But then there's also a whole raft of implicit signs that we can read from other people. And I'm thinking of some lovely work here by Louise Goupil, who's based in Paris. She's done work uh, relating people's prosody, the way they speak, to the confidence underlying their um, their, their statements. There's a paper uh, they had out this year in Nature Communications showing that you can strip away the actual content of the phrase and retain the prosody, which just sounds like meaningless babble, but it's got some rise and fall in pitch to it. And people can infer what the confidence was of that statement just from the rise and fall in pitch. And so there's a real signature implicit in the prosody of the way we speak, but also the way we act. If we act more quickly, that's associated with higher confidence. If we say things more quickly, that's associated with higher confidence in terms of how other people perceive it. And this even generalizes to online interaction. So when people are messaging on Slack or Messenger, if you write something quickly, then people will infer that you are confident in what you are saying about that. So there's all these kind of multiple layers of very subtle, interactive sharing of uncertainty that we don't necessarily
2: explicitly think about, but we're constantly doing yeah like it makes me wonder about leaders having to project Mm. certainty and confidence even when they don't feel it themselves because if they project uncertainty they're not going to have quite as many followers um the all of those subtleties that you mentioned um can you imagine them being in a machine as a partner or maybe another way to ask the question is uh, why do machines provoke, um, say, impatience and distrust if they mm. don't pick up on those cues? You know, I mean, it's a simple example, but when Siri fails, it's like it's annoying. I, mm-hmm. it's a, I can't imagine taking as much advice from a machine because maybe I'm just assuming it would be more static and not pick up on some of those signals. But it's Mm. hard to imagine a a machine helping me with my metacognition other than in very specific moments. You could get get bored with it and impatient, kind of trying to imagine what's on the other side of that that would make you stay engaged.
1: Yeah, I, I think this idea of trust is super interesting and it's something that, um, so I, I'm i not an, an AI researcher myself, but um, I have recently started a collaboration with colleagues at the Oxford Robotics, Robotics Institute. Um, and this is a big UK government funded project on creating more autonomous robots. And one core component of that project is thinking about metacognition and the relevance of metacognition for building human machine trust. So looking at how we can create better human robot teams. And there's a couple of interesting um, challenges there. And I think one is uh, more of an engineering challenge, which is taking the kind of performance prediction architectures that already exist. So how neural networks can compute um, estimates of uncertainty in what they are perceiving and and so on, how we can kind of package those down into a useful public signal of confidence um, and so this needs to be in a sense um not so oversimplified that it 's like useless, and I think some of the frustration with things like Siri is that it does get oversimplified because Siri will say i'm sorry i didn't understand that that 's in a sense an admission of doubt or failure but it's not very it's not very helpful and it's almost more frustrating because it's so simple it either works or it doesn't work whereas what we're trying to think about is could you put into your robot collaborator a easy to use easy to see public signature of confidence maybe some set of lights that glow different colors depending on how confident it is in different aspects of its um Perception of a scene or on what task it's meant to be doing. And our hope, our prediction is that that kind of um, more baroque or elaborate metacognitive component to the system might just naturally start increasing trust because it would help the human in the team realise when the robot doesn't know what it's doing and it would just smooth the, the path towards um a more natural interaction where the human could then step in and take over or provide advice or just the kind of thing we're naturally used to doing in human-human teams but perhaps is a bit more clunky at the moment in human-machine teams.
2: Mm, well, giving humans enough warning that there's something coming up. What you were saying, what would be your advice to if a robot is a self-driving car, what's your advice to the self-driving car folks? You know, it, they sit. They have software now that monitors the driver as well. Like right. if it's an autopilot situation, we've seen software that like if you're texting, which seems like such a dumb thing to do is text and drive. And everyone knows not to do it, right? Their metacognition says mm-hmm. don't do this, but they do it anyway. Yep. And <laughs> But the if the car had lights that said I'm confident or not confident – Maybe this handover issue wouldn't be quite so problematic and quite so difficult.
0: It's interesting to think about the the back and forth between expressing confidence um, and and which therefore leads one to trust. Right. So mm-hmm. um, once you've once you've learned um, uh, that um, you know I'm I'm going to point at Helen here. Once I know where. She, the areas where she's quite confident, and I feel like that confidence matches the you know the correct prediction. I I get I I I inherit some level of trust over that at, after that a certain number of interactions. But I know I c- I can sense when she's confident. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how a machine might be able to sense our confidence. Or perhaps think about it this way: is is there a way for a machine to understand our metacognitive abilities? Is there a way for a machine to measure that, mm. to understand, you know, who's who's quite strong in metacognition versus not?
1: Yeah, I I think that um I mean what you say is very interesting about this difference between um a kind of single-shot interaction. So when you just have a single statement of confidence, it's very hard to know whether that statement is justified. And when we analyze our data in the lab, we need to have people carry out many, many judgments um, over time and provide their confidence in those judgments in order to build up a statistical picture of their metacognitive um, abilities. And the same is true in everyday interaction. We need multiple interactions over time in order to build up a picture as you say of to what extent does someone's confidence tend to attract their accuracy and this is really interesting in um maybe this is a slight digression but it's a useful one I think that um into more applied settings in um in the courtroom um where there's been a strong focus on eyewitness confidence and it's been shown that um the a jury will naturally start to sense the metacognition of the witness. As long as there is are, are multiple opportunities for that witness to, in, in a sense, display their calibration, the problem comes in most settings. There's only one thing they're being asked about, and in those settings, the confidence can sway the jury, even though that confidence is totally um, divorced from whether their memory of the event is actually true. And we know from many studies that that is often the case, that confidence tends to come apart from accuracy in eyewitness contexts. And so I think it's a really interesting problem to come back to the connection with um, uh, machines, like how might we start, um, in a sense, giving machines not only the ability to communicate their own confidence, but also to track the metacognition of their, um, their human collaborator, or even the metacognition of another robot partner in the team, for instance. Um, and we do have, I think, good insights into how we might start to go about that because we, could, we have, in a sense, what that would require is applying the data um, analytic tools we have for measuring metacognition in the lab and to allow the robot to, in a sense, be analyzing that data as it comes in, to kind of build up a picture of how their team members or their collaborators um, uh, operate on a metacognitive level. So I think it's possible, but I, I don't know of anyone who's actually attempted that. Do you have thoughts on what keeps humans um, connected
0: and pursuing um, knowledge from each other when they see the limitations of someone's metacognitive capabilities. So, for instance, someone says, I, I don't know the answer to that. You don't mm-hmm. walk away and never talk to them again. Or um, they admit that I, I was wrong about that. You don't just abandon everything there. What 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 is it that... Is it about an alignment of intent? Is it some other bonding? that, that, that What keeps us pursuing that? Because with a machine, when Siri says, I don't know... Uh, here's what I found on the web. Your first reaction is, "Well, that's a waste of time." You know, you know, I, I, I'm done with that. Right? You just mm-hmm. kind of walk away. But there's something about us that we continue to want to pursue that relationship and give it another go, or ask the question a different way, or something. Curious if you understand what overpowers that, or if someone, a cognitive uh, failure, if someone
2: admits they're wrong in a way that that sort of signals that vulnerability. It almost makes us step into that relationship Mm -hmm. even more whereas a machine you're like you you never have that experience yeah (laughs) it's not a whole machine yeah
1: it's super interesting I had not really thought about that before about like how in a sense an omission of doubt on a machine might be a prompt to disengage um, whereas an omission of doubt from a human interlocutor might actually increase our trust that we should be Um, engaging in, uh, uh, you know, pursuing further interactions with that person. Um, And I think it comes down to, again, this, like, what what do we consider a signal of having good metacognition? And at the moment, the kind of admission of doubt in Siri is not really that signal. It's quite coarse, it's quite brittle. Um, Whereas if we had a slightly more, I think, fine-grained or graded um, demonstration of confidence and that landscape of what it knows and doesn't know became a bit more transparent and accessible to us. I think that would maybe limit that disengagement. Um, And, yeah, I certainly see this in, um, in kind of interactions in science. Like everyone wants to be able to say, yeah, I really know this, this is right. And, you know, this is my new finding and tweet about it and tell everyone about what you've discovered. But there is also a sense in which you'd start to trust another scientist a bit more if they're also willing to kind of say, I don't know anything about this particular topic, or I don't know the answer to that question. And there have been a couple of studies recently done showing that when people... Um, admit error in a paper um, which used to be considered career suicide to kind of retract a big paper Um, now the community I think in a a good development is that the community are much more forgiving and if anything it can actually increase people's trust in in the other things that you haven't uh, admitted error in so and it, it all comes back to yeah, being able to create this metacognitive profile of other people. And it's something we do effortlessly. But I think it's something that at the moment, as you say, it seems quite off-putting to try and do the same to machines.
0: It's interesting. Many years ago, I worked on Wall Street as a research analyst. And the core part of the job is predicting which stocks would go up and which would go down. But The way that people really advanced their career in one core way was to be able to evaluate when they were wrong and Mm. why they were wrong. And if you could walk in and express that, people had more trust in your future predictions because Mm -hmm. clearly no one is always right. You know, none of the, any of the best investors in the world are always wrong some percentage of the time, but the client wanted to hear that you'd figured out why you were wrong because they thought that that meant that you were learning. Like it was a right. way of expressing the learning journey. And so when you're talking through this, it really connects for me. In, in in that real world scenario, I see what you're saying about science that like it, you know, used to be considered career suicide to admit a failure, but in other, in other fields, that's actually, uh, it's, it's a badge of honor to, mm-hmm. to know why and to be able to express that and people look for that because otherwise if you were wrong once and you didn't learn you're going to be wrong again for the same reasons um, but it is it is interesting to think of it in this in this concept of metacognition which i don't think we were thinking about 20 years ago Get no, it's actually way. an
2: incredibly handy thing to have a name for. Yes, you know, it, 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 <laughs> it is. It, it is. It's like when I first stumbled on, it, it's like, "Oh, well, there's a name for that thing." Yeah. That's just incredible. <laughs> and um, it, it, and I found that that's you know, it's, it's just powerful to have a to have a name for mm-hmm. the for the the field and a name for the concept, and and to have a simple name as well. Thinking about thinking it makes sense, you know, people kind of go, oh, yeah, I, the, I do do that I, and the dog doesn't do that, That's, you know, that's helpful. And to be able to say, well, there's a difference between disappointment and regret, oh, yeah, there is. You know, it's sort of pulling apart those things and getting a little bit more richness to the discussion, which is why it was so fascinating to start thinking about this in terms of of agency and in terms of choice because a lot of what is – kind of implicit some, some sometimes explicit but a lot of the implicit goal of of ai is to somehow make us better you know that's the good thing that's the good side of it there's definitely a lot of safety and dystopia but there's also this idea amongst probably most people that we can augment our own intelligence we're not going to be hanging out on the beach doing no work. People, we want to work. We want to get better at things. We want to use machines to help us discover more. You know, that's really the, the kind of core of this. There's this idea that, that if we could have this machine that could help us think better, whatever that mm. means, right, then um, we can have better lives and we can be happier. That's kind of the general like flourishing thought, human flourishing. But it sort of starts with this assumption that we know what we want. And, there, I mean, you can just blow that apart so quickly by just imagining going to a therapist thinking that you've got the answer to something and after the first session you're going, "Ah, well, actually maybe it was something else.
1: Mm-hmm. Why are we
2: so bad at knowing what we want? And what does that tell us about whether we should really put more agency in machines and have them tell us what we want or whether we should try and develop our own agency better in our own metacognition to know what we want better and that's a really big question (laughs) and (laughs) and probably could go for a long time three books that kind of thing but it's like I'm just so curious about it because we keep getting stuck on our conversations between well maybe humans aren't that great at knowing what they want and maybe the machine would be better but then we go okay well that means that personalization is a good thing well it needs a lot of help it's not great you know netflix doesn't tell me everything i want to watch
0: and it makes us makes us the machine
2: Mm. if the machine is telling us what i want
0: we're just solving for its predictions
1: yeah i i mean i think it's a fascinating area i i I wonder actually whether we do know what we want to a greater degree than we maybe think we we in a sense we have this um broader notion of what's we would like to be doing. I think the the problem often is that we don't choose the things that we want to be um, doing. We kind of get sucked into um, taking on more things at work or thinking we have to clear our inboxes and so on when actually we should be playing with our kids or um, kind of having a conversation with our parents or whatever it is that we on a more abstract level, feel like we should be doing or feel like we want to be doing. And so I think the challenge often is being able to align those levels um, of um, what the, and, and here I'm quite attracted to the point of view of a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who defended this idea of autonomy as being, the connection between or when the the relationship between second order desires, so wanting um, to want something and first order desires what we end up um, desiring on a moment to moment basis, and so to make that difference clear, he uses the example of someone who is addicted to drugs who has a first order desire for the drug, but then you can imagine two scenarios, one in which you have a second order desire to not be addicted so there's this idea of like you know i do want this but i don't want to want this and so i'm going to go and um seek help or or get therapy or whatever i need to be doing and then there's at the other end of the spectrum you might have someone with the same first order desire who thoroughly endorses this and be like yeah that's my life choice i'm that's what i'm doing and so in a sense you do have this this um this structure to to um you know to to our um wants and likes, and I think metacognition is a, a big part of this because it in a sense provides um the machinery for creating these second order desires, and we've been studying this in the lab to some extent. This is work that I've done with benedetto de Martino, a colleague of mine at UCL. Um, In very simple experiments, we're certainly not at the level of studying second-order desires about drug-taking yet, but we are looking at how people form confidence in subjective decisions. And we have found that um, the confidence we have in making decisions about things like what do we want to eat can fluctuate just like confidence in our knowledge fluctuates. So sometimes we make a decision where we say choose To have pizza rather than pasta and then after the fact we realize that that was a bad choice so that's a case where we chose something that reflectively we didn't really endorse and in a sense we can then build up a picture of what autonomy or agency is by saying autonomy at the highest level of reflection is when our higher order desires match up With our first order desires which effectively means we want what we choose and we choose what we want so there's this kind of like nice alignment there and i think there is um just on a interest introspectively that does feel um to have a a benefit for well-being it does seem like that's you know a nice um, way of thinking about autonomy
0: i'm just as you're explaining the First order and second order. I'm stuck thinking about potato chips
2: because, (laughs) oh my god, yeah, uh, it rolls around six
0: o'clock, and I I want to. I want potato chips, but I have a second order, which is I don't want to want the potato chips. No, I do not want the
2: potato chips.
0: But I can't think myself out of that (laughs) first order. I want. I want to eat the potato chips. Yeah. yeah. So I'm. I'm actually wondering what to do with that conflict when yeah. i've actually thought about it and i know that i've got two competing things and one's near right there they're sitting there and one's a long term like what do i do with that how do i resolve that level of essentially self-awareness that i understand it but what do i what do, well, I, and you, what and do and I you make of it and
2: you have it every every day and if you had a you could set an alert on your phone to say to you at six o'clock every night don't eat the potato chips or an alert that says if you don't eat the potato chips, you will be beautiful or whatever. But I know I'm still going to want to eat them. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's it's uh, so interesting, this topic. I, I I feel like we're now just sliding into therapy. I'm just going to give you therapy on your potato chip addiction, Dave. But um, <laughs> the, the, I think that what I talk about in the book is this alignment between what psychologists call pre-commitment or in a sense restructuring our environment and metacognition so it seems intuitive that in order to be able to take the steps to realign the higher order and first order desire we first need to know about that misalignment we need to have in some sense low confidence that what i'm doing right now which is eating the potato chips is good for me and good for my general you know um sense of autonomy and being a free agent and There's some lovely work. This is work from um, Molly Crockett, who's a neuroscientist at Yale. And she's shown that when people engage in pre-commitment, so when they, in a sense, close off avenues that would have been available to them. So in the potato chips case, that would be like, don't buy them in the first place. I'm deciding not to buy them in the first place. That's pre-committing to not uh, not having them available. Then... It's, there's two things she finds there. One is the people who engage in pre-commitment in the first place are the ones with better self-awareness or better metacognition about that misalignment. And the other thing she finds, this is a brain imaging finding, that when people engage in pre-commitment, they activate regions of the polar cortex, so right towards the front of the prefrontal cortex, that in our studies we've shown are important for metacognition. Um, so there's this, Kind of nice um, symmetry there, which suggests that the the neural machinery involved in supporting self-awareness, not only does it make us aware of this conflict, it's also useful for resolving the conflict. Um, and I, you know, my version of the potato chips thing is um, perhaps even more existential. It's like I don't want to be looking at my smartphone when I'm playing with my kids. I want to be just in the moment playing with my kids, but there's kind of like this. So the pre-commitment aspect of that is like, right, I'm going to remove Twitter from my phone so I won't be tempted to pick it up when I'm sitting on the floor with my toddler. Um, so, yeah, and in a sense, like, I mean, it's it's the age-old thing, the 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 age-old therapy advice that in order to solve a problem, first you've got to admit to having the problem. And that seems to fundamentally depend on having this Massive cognitive view of
2: ourselves. Oh, there's so many places to go with the (laughs) sitting on the floor with the toddler. uh, I I I think that there will be a generation of parents that that wish they'd done that, you know, taken Twitter off their phone or whatever. Because it's it is it's you have this sense of of it just pulls you in so strongly, much more than much more than sort of makes First order sense, if you like. It's yeah. random noise from the universe compared to this, you know, living being thing in front of you. It's, it, it, and it's um the idea that you can resolve more emotional tension by pre-committing I think is really interesting. And, and our potato chip example, which is obviously far more trivial, the times we decided not to buy potato chips.
0: Or the times we didn't eat them.
2: Well, and also the desire for it went away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
2: there's something happening there that I wonder if you can have in an AI a more sophisticated way of monitoring this this first order, second order, short term, long term, you know, whatever way you mm. want to think about that trade off. There's one thing that you said that I hadn't thought of at all, which is say you did set an alert that said, you know, don't eat the chip or whatever. So you said, you know, or do your stand goal. You know, these things happen all the time. Um, then, But your response to that was that you had to somehow rate your confidence in whether or not you wanted to do that or you were going to do mm-hmm. that or you thought it was still the right thing at the right time. That actually what what you're doing in that moment is um, evaluating whether or not it's still the right thing for you. So you have to take that moment to say, well, yes, I'm overcome with the desire to pick up Twitter, but I actually still really don't want to, as opposed to I'm overwhelmed with the desire to pick up Twitter and I'm going to even though the child's sitting there. Yeah, There's almost this like next layer that you could go into that you're doing in your own mind, you could do in your own mind, but what if you put it into the machine? With that's that- super,
1: yeah, that's super interesting to think about. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, the idea that in a sense you could have – machine learning going on, not just about our wants, what we want to click on next, but also in a sense, you could have some kind of machine learning about these second order desires, right? And then Mm -hmm. perhaps that creates more, yeah, technologies that we feel subjectively are more beneficial. There's more of an alignment there. Um, I, I mean, one of the, just, just to pick up on something you were saying about machines and outsourcing and and um, and like the Netflix algorithms knowing what we want uh, better than we know ourselves. I think that the the danger here for this kind of um, alignment between first order and higher order de- desires is that when we do outsource to machines, when when a kind of external agency takes over, if you like, then we 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 lose that capacity to want to want something it's just delivered to us we become passive recipients and we don't have this just natural self-endorsement of the choices we're making and so i think that can become quite dangerous because especially if it's optimized for the first order desires then you won't need to think about do i need to get potato chips in they'll just be a pack appearing for you, and then it'll be very hard then to kind of do the kind of optimization of the second order stuff that we've just been
2: talking about. We worry a lot about that, mm. and it's been a central part of what's um, actually driven our motivation to hmm. to pursue this business and this, this stuff that we do. It, it's really probably the core motivation for the book that we're writing
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, mm. because nice. we see it, you sort of see it everywhere. You, you could start off with, Surveillance capitalism has been the place that this sort of popped into the consciousness. Um, we take it in terms of that paradox of personalization—that you become more more predictable, um, even though you're trying to be more person. There's more personalization as an endeavor, but you're actually just fitting everyone to just numerous curves. Um, it it's, um, it does sort of beg the question of whether it's part of this sort of epidemic of loneliness that you sit there on Instagram you don't even know that you that you have a want to be more um, physically connected not like real world connection with people. We have an AI designer that we um that we've interviewed before and know well his name's Josh lovejoy he's now at Google, but he gave us a quote that I thought might interest you he said. I'd like to understand more about how we can effectively impart foresight on one another in ways that don't just limit our capability of capacity but actually reach us. And that sounds a little bit first order, second order. It's still, you're mm. still able to form those, those wants with autonomy but in a way that somehow doesn't it somehow uses other people's information as well but in a way that mm-hmm. preserves everyone's autonomy and privacy, which, of course, is the hardest thing to achieve. Like, how do you do both of those? How do you know something about someone's desires without interfering with privacy? That's paradoxical mm-hmm. in itself. It sort of occurred to us that perhaps metacognition is one of the ways out of this, one of the ways out of this bind.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think it um, comes back to, this idea that we don't always have great self-awareness about what is best for us. Um, we might have this sense of conflict between higher order and and uh, more first-order desires, but this is where I think in our daily lives, the external perspective, in a sense, it comes back to what we were talking about at the start, about coaches and parents providing the metacognition for their kids. Like As adults, we also have this where others can feed back to us and, and say um, that, you know, you seemed much happier when you were doing this. And I, it, it chimes very nicely with your Instagram example. I mean, my wife often says this to me that like I'm always like, oh, I don't want to make any plans for the weekend. I'd rather read or do X, Y, and Z. And she's like, no, you're always much happier after we've gone out and seen seen friends. And she's totally right. But it takes an external perspective to to make me see this. And I wonder whether, to come back to your um, Google colleague's question, whether rather than optimizing for choice, which is what a lot of machine learning algorithms do, they optimize for, like, okay, I want to be constantly clicking this or engaging with this. It's more optimizing for what is harder to pin down, but perhaps trying to engage with this more third-person perspective on well-being, and and you know, if if there was a way of optimizing for what other people thought was making me happy, that could actually be really powerful. Right? It's probably really hard to do, but it could be really powerful.
0: It, you're, you're you're grabbing onto one of the, you know, one of the wonderful things of being in an, in an, in a relationship with someone, whether it's a, a partner or a parent or a child, who knows you so well that they can actually reflect things back to you in ways that are new and interesting to you where someone can actually have the ability to at times perhaps know you better than you know yourself uh, because they have a, a different way of looking and you're not trapped in the constant churning of our own brains measuring what do we want what do we need what do we yep. think we should want or should need, which is also a, a big thing, right? All the society things, but someone who has a third person view can actually kind of reflect that back and say, yep. well, I know you pretty well. I've seen this movie before with you, <laughs> right? Like we've all had <laughs> those conversations, right? And and when you're on the receiving end of that, it, sometimes it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. uh, but on a lot of times it's some of the most interesting insights you can have, which is A fascinating thing to kind of wrap back around to this concept of metacognition relying on at least in part knowledge coming from our community from the people around us that it isn't just a moment of going in the room and shutting the door and self-reflection it does actually involve conversations with our community which and we've evolved to make that work Right with humans. And we think about it as a combination of so if our community now involves machines, how can we how can we learn from what we are getting today from humans that's so valuable? Mm -hmm. And would there be a way to complement that with something from a machine? Maybe not replicate. Maybe it's something that's different and additive, but what can we learn from what we're getting from each other um, that improves our metadata you know capabilities? Ah, super interesting <laughs> well thank you thank you very much we really appreciate your time and sharing all of this with us
1: yeah no thanks so much for having me on it's been been great